This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Home improvement has become kind of a fad over the years. Uh, the television industry has picked up on that. And uh, one of the main plot lines you see in these shows is buying an old house, a dilapidated house, and then gutting it down to the studs and uh, reformatting it, all, all that sort of thing. So one of the questions you inevitably hear from designers and contractors is, is this a load-bearing wall? Right, Open concept is the big thing today. That requires getting rid of as many walls as possible. Uh, but you can't get rid of the load-bearing ones uh, because they do exactly like they sound they should do. They hold up the entire structure. And uh, we're in a series called The Story where we're looking at eight load-bearing walls to the entire structure of the Bible it's one way to think about what we're doing with this series, the eight load-bearing walls that hold up the entire structure of, of the Bible. Another way to think about this, if you, if you have kids or grandkids, you've got nieces or nephews, and uh, you know, you're doing devotions with them, and you know, one day you just want to be able to retell the Bible's story to them, this is also running through my mind as we do this. Uh, is there a way in which we could capture the whole story of the scriptures after dinner one night? And so these eight parts, hopefully, you can take and use as you work to retell the story to uh, your kids, your grandkids, nieces, nephews, because we know that stories change lives. Now, we're not just describing the story. We're, of course, looking at the so what question. What are the implications of this part of the story for me and for my life? Now, last week, we looked at Genesis 1, the first load-bearing wall, and uh, we looked at what it had to say to us about God, because how you start determines where you'll finish. The nose of an oceanic ship that's off just one inch at the beginning of the journey, over 5,000 miles, will be off many, 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 many miles off its target by the time it reaches the end of its journey. So how you start is very important. And where does the story start? Where does it start? It starts with this. Once there was only God. That's where it starts. For millions and billions and trillions of years, if we can speak of it in such a way, there was only God. He's ultimate reality. He's the only constant. He existed before he made anything else, and he himself was never made. Once there was only God. He's the very first piece in the story. And let's be very clear about this book. He is the primary character in this book. The story is about him. As my mother was fond of saying, Brian, the world does not revolve around you. Now, what do you call it when the God who is eternal, all-powerful, all-glorious, self-existent, completely independent, crafts a paradise, then creates human beings made in his image to live there and enjoy it? What do you call that? You call that a gracious and good gift. 
For Adam and Eve, the colors were brighter and the flavors more luscious than you and I have ever seen or tasted. Picture this paradise that God crafted with meticulous precision and exquisite beauty. Picture it. Once it was all set, once God was able to say of it, this is very good, then and only then did he introduce Adam and Eve into the picture. He set an immaculate table with the finest linens, cutlery, glasses, and food, and then he brought Adam and Eve into the dining room and sat them at their places to enjoy it. A gracious and good gift. That's very important for you to get hold of. If we're ever going to come to terms with the severity, the heinousness, and atrociousness of what took place in Genesis 3, which is what we're going to look at today. If we don't understand the perfection of God and the gracious and good gift he gave our first parents, we will never understand the severity of what took place in Genesis 3. Sin is the second load-bearing wall we're going to look at and consider today. We're going to look at it through Genesis 3. Here's what we're going to do. Three points. We're going to look at sin's runway, sin's takeoff, and sin's landing. I have no idea why I chose to use aviation imagery, but uh, it's 9.27 on Sunday morning. Alas, there it is, and it's time to preach. So we're stuck with it. Sin's runway, sin's takeoff, sin's landing. Let's look at it first. Sin's runway. Let me read the first three verses. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. There are a couple of um, precursors to the fall of humanity, precursors, I think, that lead to our own fall into sin in these three verses. The first is doubting the words of God. When you see what Satan is doing here, you realize he is not making an intelligent argument. There is no argument here. He's trying to undermine the clarity of God's word through cleverly crafted questions. Did God really say that? I I don't know about that. Did God really say, you see, I don't think he actually means what it looks like he means. You see how this goes? There is no intelligent defense of his position. He is just trying to enshroud God's word in a cloak of obscurity. He's trying to throw shade on the light of God's word. It's interesting to note that Satan's first tactic with our first parents, and oftentimes with us, is to go after the clarity of God's word. That's his first move. Let's get after this. Let's see if we can undermine it. Did God really say Oh, now you start questioning. Well, maybe, maybe it doesn't mean what it looks like it means. He's trying to undermine the clarity of God's word. You know, within the church, this has played out visibly 
in numerous ways. Maybe the most visible example of this is the sex ethic of our day. Marriage is one man and one woman for life. Sex is God's good gift to be enjoyed within the context of that marriage. But Satan has so toyed with so many professing believers today that the seed of doubt has been planted. I'm not sure what I think about that anymore. I'm not sure what I think about the place of sex anymore. And the list goes on and on. Matters of practical importance that God is very clear about have had shade thrown on them because many Christians have been duped either through their own ignorance or just a willful negligence. I pray very, two, the two very specific things for you and for our church. I pray that God gives us a voracious and insatiable appetite for his word. A voracious and insatiable appetite for his word. And with that, by the way, not just getting through large quantities of biblical text, but paying attention to details. Pay attention to details. You notice how Satan worked with that, right? He's working inside the text, trying to erode it from, in, from within. So I pray those two. One, one thing is we have voracious appetite, insatiable appetite for his word, and we pay attention to details. And the second is that God will give us the courage to stand on it in the face of enormous pressure. God's word teaches things that are not popular today. You will be poked. You'll be prodded, just like Adam and Eve, to abandon ship. I pray that God will give us a moxie that stands tall and stout in the face of that pressure. So the first precursor to the fall of Adam and Eve, and I think the first precursor that happens oftentimes with our own fall into sin, is we venture off the solid foundation of what the scriptures clearly say. Satan's first tactic is go after the word of God. If I can get this to be a gray area in their minds, then I've I've taken a big step in getting to them. Second is believing a lie about God. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this is an outright lie, right? Outright lie. Interesting, the first doctrine to be flat out denied in the scriptures is the doctrine of judgment. Divine judgment. That's not going to happen. Don't worry about that. That's not going to happen. When, of course, God was very clear that it would happen. This is an outright lie. What is he doing? In a sense, you get the feeling like he's saying to Eve, "Uh, I don't know if God, is he really looking out for your best? Does he really have your best interest in mind? Don't you think, Eve, you could become so much more than you are now if you launched out and got away from him a little bit. I think he's trying to restrict you. I think he's trying to keep you in your place. Now, you wouldn't want that, now would you? What's the lie? Well, the serpent's clever. It doesn't go after the existence of God. It doesn't try to convince them that atheism is the way to go. 
He doesn't try to overwhelm them with harsh persecution, making them suffer. Instead, he tries to get them to question the goodness of God. He's not really looking out for you, Eve. He doesn't really want what's best for you. Oh, really? They swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker. Now, what happens if we buy into this lie that God isn't good? Everybody wants good in their lives. And if it's not going to come from God, then I guess I got to go out there and create my own. Hmm? I got to go create my own good. If God isn't good, then I've got to create my own good by making sure I'm working every overtime shift available to have enough money for the mortgage, retirement, kids' college education. If God isn't good, I've got to create my own good by changing the way I speak and act so other people will accept me. If God's not good, then I've got to create my own good by making my home into an impenetrable fortress so no harm will come to my kids. If God isn't good, I've got to create my own good by finding love and affection from someone I'm not married to. When we buy into the lie that God isn't good, we end up trying to go out there on our own to create our own good, which only, in the end, leads to just pain and emptiness. You remember the prodigal son? Luke 15, this young teenage boy really did have it all. It's not like his father was a bad dad. He had it all. But he demanded more. He demanded something different from what his loving father had provided. And so as God often does with us, he hands his son over to the desires of his heart. Fine. You don't believe I'm looking out for your good? Then go out there. Have at it. See what happens. And what happened? You know, he got his share of the inheritance prematurely, promptly leaves home and squanders it all away on prostitutes in the casinos. He's, he's with the pigs, stinky, dirty, hungry, completely empty and unfulfilled. He questioned the goodness of his father, and so he left home trying to create his own good, but that only led to emptiness and pain. If there was ever an argument for doing life God's way, that's it. Do life God's way. So sin's runway, the thing that creates the conditions needed for sin to wrap its tentacles around us, doubting the words of God, believing a lie about God. Second, sin's takeoff. Verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And what's the deal with this tree? You know, the very first sin did not go down the way we typically think of sin. There was no murder, adultery, or stealing, not in the conventional sense anyway, that's, that's not what happened here. It's interesting, this tree, this mysterious tree that Adam and Eve were told not to eat from was not inherently evil. It was a good thing. It was part of the creation after which God stood back and said, this is exceedingly good, including that tree. The tree is a good thing. 
The very first sin was murder, wasn't adultery. The very first sin was entering into an inappropriate relationship with a good thing. As one pastor put it, turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. Turning a good thing into a gotta have it thing. Turning a good thing into a God thing. (laughs) What does that look like? What do I mean by that? Well, when we take good things and we use them to give us worth and value and significance and meaning in life, whatever those things are, whatever they may be, are operating as your God. They're good things. Could be your career. Could be your spouse. Could be your kids. Could be money. Could be affection. Sin is taking good things and turning them into ultimate things. Sin is using good things to give you significance and meaning. This is powerfully illustrated in countless places around popular culture. Last week I told you about my favorite teenage movie, Hoosiers. Uh, And I've told you about my favorite childhood movie, Chariots of Fire. I told you about my encounter with the employee of the city where I was trying to dig up the road outside my house to make the starting blocks for Chariots of Fire. It was very difficult getting through the asphalt. Very difficult. You know the movie. You know the story. The 8th Olympiad British track team. Harold Abrahams is kind of the antagonist in the movie. He's obsessed with winning. Just before the finals of the 100-meter dash, he's in the training room getting ready with one of his teammates named Aubrey, and he becomes very reflective. And he says to him, you, Aubrey, are my most complete man. You're brave, compassionate, kind, a content man. That's your secret, contentment. I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, yet I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. Aubrey, old chap, I'm scared. And now in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. (laughs) But will I? 10 seconds to justify my existence. What do you look to to justify yours? What devastates your world is taking good things and using them to justify your existence. Along my path, I've encountered parents absolutely devastated over how their kids have turned out. So devastated they've needed help to regain their footing in life. Parenting is a good thing. It's a good thing. And working hard to be a good parent is a good thing. But if your significance and meaning in life comes from how your kids turn out, and using that as your self-perception of whether or not you've been a good mom or dad, you've turned it into an ultimate thing. Being a good parent is how you experience significance in life. What happens if your kids don't turn out the way you think they need to in order to justify the fact that you've been a good parent? What happens? You know, there's something very ironic about what happened here in the garden. 
The thing Adam and Eve thought would make everything better actually made them worse. Do you realize that? (laughs) They got what they thought they needed to become better than they were. What happened? They became worse, much, much worse than they were before. This is precisely what happened with Harold Abrahams. After the scene I described for you, he goes out there for the finals of the 100-meter dash, and he wins. He wins the gold medal. He's hoisted on the shoulders of his teammates, draped in the British flag, celebrating. In one of the very next scenes, he's in the bar, inebriated, staring off into the distance as if to say, is this all there is? There's got to be more to it than this. This can't be all there is. We relive this every day. We're constantly telling ourselves, if only I had this, then everything would be okay. If only things were like this, then I would be fulfilled. If only I had more money, then my life would be better. If only I had a better job, then I would be content. If only the economy would turn around, then I would be secure. If only I had a spouse, then I would have meaning and purpose in life. We even bring this into the church and quietly tell ourselves, if only the church would do things this way or offer that ministry, then I could be content here. If only, if only, if only, not realizing if, if our only came true, our lives may actually get exponentially worse. What's your tree? (laughs) What's your tree? We've all got them. I have an orchard. What good thing has become a gotta have it thing in your life? Sin is turning good things into ultimate things. But when looking at this, we shouldn't just look at the side effects of it for us. This is where a lot of people stop. There's a lot of self-interest in this now. We've got to look deeper than the side effects for us. We'll stay with this mysterious tree, but we have to look deeper than its effects on us. We need to see what partaking of it looks like from God's perspective. This tree was a good thing, but Adam and Eve promoted it to a position in their lives that was meant to be reserved for God alone. Good things in wrong places can be disastrous. I need water in my body to survive. It's a good thing, but I don't want it in my lungs. Good things in wrong places are devastating. God decreed that Adam and Eve should have a particular kind of relationship to this tree and not some other kind of relationship to this tree. The Apostle Paul describes this as worshiping created things rather than the creator. Adam and Eve disobeyed the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This is why the Apostle John labels sin as lawlessness. Not lawlessness as in overthrowing a government's laws. Not that kind of lawlessness, though it might include that. When the Bible uses the term lawlessness, it is talking about forsaking the moral law of God. 
This is what Adam and Eve did. They were lawless. They changed their relationship to this tree and ended up in an inappropriate relationship with it. The tree became to them what God alone was meant to be. What's your tree? What good thing do you have an inappropriate relationship with? (laughs) Money, job, kids, hobbies, control, approval. What good thing do you have an inappropriate relationship with? I can flesh this out further. We have a tendency to think of the Ten Commandments as a random list. We're going to look at this in detail in a few weeks. But God didn't select the Ten Commandments randomly. He wasn't bored one day and decided that he would generate an eclectic to-do list. They're an expression of his holiness, his righteousness. They're a natural outworking of his essence and being. The moral law of God manifests God. So to sin isn't to break an arbitrary rule. Sin is personally violating the eternal and triune God. Sin is a personal offense committed against God. God went to extraordinary lengths to try to explain this to his people through the life of Hosea. God tells Hosea to marry Gomer, a prostitute. And in their marriage, she continued to work as a prostitute And Hosea remained faithful to her in spite of what she was up to every day. Hosea plays the God role to show Israel what sin is. Adultery. Question. If you're married, is adultery a code violation? Or is it a bit more personal than that? Sin is taking a good thing and making an ultimate thing. It's taking a good thing and turning into a gotta have it thing. And so Adam and Eve got the very thing they thought would make their lives even better than they already were, and they became infinitely worse. Why? They violated God. Rebellion against God always leaves devastation in its wake. It always leaves you in the bar after getting your gotta have it thing, staring off in the distance as if to say, Is this all there is? Is this all there is? Third, sin's landing. What results does sin produce? I'm going to tick through these quickly. Sin affects us, first of all, vocationally. God declares the good work he put Adam and Eve in the garden to do will become frustrating and filled with fruitlessness. Have you ever experienced frustration at work? Now you know why. Machines breaking down, computers crashing, revenue dropping, rodents destroying your garden. God declares vocational frustration and fruitlessness to be a consequence of sin. Second, sin affects us physically. He declared that the very thing that, that he decreed would happen, the birth of children, would become exceedingly excruciating. I think we can extrapolate from this that physical pain wasn't part of the original design. So it's not just pain in in childbirth that is brought on by sin, but it's arthritis and stubbed toes and viruses and headaches and, of course, death. It affects us relationally. God makes it a point to bring out the fact that there's going to be marital volatility now. Battle of the sexes. Marital bliss has been replaced. There's now a struggle for control. 
sin affects us spiritually. There are a couple of spiritual results that uh, come from sin. One is hiding. You notice that? When Adam and Eve realize what they've done, they hide. They hide. At the very bottom of it, the reason people don't take much of an interest in God, the reason people don't take much of an interest in Jesus or the Bible or church is they're hiding. That's at the bottom of it. The reason there are thousands of people in our county today, not in church this morning, is they're hiding. Hiding from God. Why? I think there are a couple of reasons people hide. I think we can find that in Adam and Eve's behavior. Number one, they're filled with shame. And if they emerge from their hiding place, they're not sure what kind of God will greet them. This type of hider needs the message of forgiveness. Of God's love and grace. I think you'd be surprised at how many people don't realize the one thing that makes Christianity unique among world religions is the offer of grace. In every other religion and philosophy, you have to make up for your own shortcomings. That's paralyzing. It's debilitating. Only Christianity has the offer of grace, forgiveness. You'd be surprised how many people don't know that. But that's one reason they hide. They're not sure what kind of God they're going to encounter were they to emerge from their hiding place. The second reason people hide is they know what God's going to say, do, or ask, and they don't want to hear it. (laughs) They know what God's going to do, ask, or, or, or say, but they don't want to hear it. They've got a kind of arrogant anger in their heart that refuses to acknowledge God as sovereign ruler and judge. In other words, they don't really want God to be God. This type of hider needs a power encounter with the holy and transcendent God. They need a Damascus Road experience that Saul of Tarsus was given. So the first result of sin is hiding. The second result of sin is dramatically clear and constitutes one of the core plot lines of the entire Bible. That is banishment from Eden. If you're reading the Bible as a story, at this point, when you get through Genesis 3, the primary tension in the story is, oh my, we have been cut off from Eden. We have been cut off from the tree of life. How do we get back in? It's horrible out here. How do we get back in? One of the primary tensions in the entire plotline of the Bible is set for you in Genesis 3. They're banished from Eden. That's God's dwelling place. And we've been booted. How do we get back in? The rest of the scriptures kind of talk about that. They provide temporary ways, but insufficient ways in which human beings can once again get within reach of the very presence of God. How could Adam and Eve have sold out like they did? How could they have sold out? Look what they had. Bounty and beauty and harmony and prosperity. Inhabiting the very presence of God. How could they have thrown it all away? It's easy for us to look at Adam and even blame them. As a child, when I was sick, I remember yelling out at one point in time, Adam and Eve, you did this to me. Well, we all would have done the same thing. (laughs) 
we all would have done the same thing. And while we don't inhabit a perfect environment, we do what they did every day. We eat of our trees. We eat of our trees. But this passage doesn't leave us without hope. Notice what God does. While Adam and Eve are hiding, God calls out to them, where are you? The story of the Bible, in fact, the story of all of human history, is not a story about man's search for God. It's about God's search for man. In fact, if you're a Christ follower, at some point, he asked that question of you. Where are you? And he's not coming to get you. He's coming for you to make you his own. So even in their fallen, rebellious, and sin-filled state, God calls out, where are you? And he does so not because he's out to get them. How do I know that? Well, notice what God does. He replaces the fig leaves with skins. Adam and Eve had fashioned these crude coverings made of fig leaves. God says that's not going to be sufficient. In other words, you cannot compensate enough to take care of your own guilt and shame. I've got to do that for you. (laughs) Where did the skins come from? The first death in the Bible is for the purpose of covering Adam and Eve's guilt and shame. Doing so comes at a cost. A life has been given up in death. This is the first sacrifice in a long trajectory of bloody sacrifices that reaches all the way down to the coming of Jesus. When he appears, he's declared to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By his bloody sacrifice, by his death, we're covered over. Our shame and our guilt are addressed because he dies in our place. A lamb can't do that. Here in Genesis 3, the death of an animal to cover the man and the woman is a picture of what is to come. The first step of an entire institution of sacrifices that point us finally to the supreme sacrifice and what Jesus did to take away your sin, my sin, and cover up our shame. The Lamb of God in my place. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we want to pause and acknowledge the fact that we stand on the foundation of your word to us. And we've been given a very clear picture of what happens when we wander from it. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us a, an enduring conviction to remain on the trustworthy foundation of your word to us. When... <laughs> When the enemy wants to try to call into question something God has said, when he tries to mess with us, 
I pray we would recognize what's taking place. That his work is primarily going about trying to erode the clarity of what you've said to us and our confidence in it. Bring us back to the sure and trustworthy word you have for us. And Lord, I know that that every one of us is dealing and we deal with every day good things in our lives that we have promoted to a place they don't deserve. Show us what those are in these moments as as we come to the table, God. I pray that you would show us what they are. What is our tree? What's the tree? What good thing have we turned into an ultimate thing? What good thing are we looking at to say, I have to have that if I'm going to have a sense of value and worth in this life? Show us what that is. And I pray we'd be quick to confess it to you. Because Jesus has come to live and die in our place for the purpose of addressing that problem. Open our eyes, open our hearts now to the wretchedness of our sin and to the graciousness of our Savior. In whose name we pray. Amen.